0: The scripture this morning is found in the book of 1 John, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Thank you, Scott, for reading scripture for us this morning. So when I was growing up, my family and I went away to Ocean City, New Jersey uh, for a week-long vacation every year. it's fitting that my parents are here with us this morning uh, to hear me tell this story. Uh, So I have lots of fond memories of those trips to the beach as a kid, walking on the boardwalk to get Mac and Manko's Pizza. Yes, I know it's Manko and Manco's now. Uh, I still call it Mac and Manco's. Don't be mad at me, please. Um, Core Brothers Ice Cream. Johnson's Popcorn. Uh, fudge. Taffy. I'm seeing some head nods from people that I'm assuming know what I'm talking about. Okay. <laughs> uh, basically, anything that isn't good for you, uh, you can find at, on the boardwalk at Ocean City. Uh, and we would go into you know, the various amusement parks and go on the rides. And if it rained, I remember going into a movie theater to, to watch a movie. I have lots of fond memories of these trips as a kid. Uh, but that was only you know, the boardwalk at night. During the day, uh, we would spend the day on the beach. And one of my favorite things to do when I was a kid was to build a sandcastle. Now, I'm not a very artistic person, uh, and so my sandcastles were never uh, very good-looking. Uh, my goal in building a sandcastle uh, was to build a structure about halfway up the beach so that when the tide went out uh, and then it would come back in, I was trying to build a sandcastle that would withstand the waves. Uh, and so I would, you know, dig dig a moat. I would build up some walls. You know, I'd pack the sand in really tight. Uh, my goal uh, was to try, and obviously I never succeeded in that. The waves always ended up winning, uh, but I would try and build a sandcastle in that way. And as I would walk along the boardwalk at night, I would look out onto the beach to see if, you know, maybe my sandcastle was still there, or maybe someone else's sandcastle was there. Uh, but there was never anything, right? It was all just washed back to normal. See, what I realized from this uh, was that sand is not a very durable building material, (laughs) at least in its natural state on the beach. Uh, No matter how hard you try and pack it together, uh, it still can't withstand the waves and eventually it'll just fall apart. That realization that I made as a kid is the same realization that Jesus makes today as he closes his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. As Jesus closes his sermon, he will give us a choice. This is a passage of scripture that you're probably familiar with. Will we build our lives upon the rock, or will we build our lives upon the sand? So let me pray for us, and then we'll talk about Matthew chapter 7 today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, what you say to us in your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who has given us this instruction, this practical teaching on our lives of how we should live. God, we thank you. You are our rock. As we talk today, God, may we build our lives upon you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 7. That's where we'll be spending our time together today. Uh, We're continuing in this series through the book of Matthew. Uh, And today uh, we arrive, this is the the final part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So he'll wrap it up here for us today. Uh, I've split today's passage up into three parts. You can think of these as maybe three takeaways to get from this sermon. First, how to judge and ask, in verses 1 through 12. Second, how to enter the kingdom, verses 13 through 23. And then finally, how to build a foundation, verses 24 through 29. If you have a bulletin, you can see those in your outline. Let me read that first section for us, uh, Matthew 7, verses 1 through 12. Do not judge First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which one of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you, then, who though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. I'll stop reading there for us this morning. Jesus, he's closing or continuing with one last bit of, you know, his ethical teaching in this chapter. So last week we saw him go through a number of different things. His command here is pretty simple. Do not judge others. If you do judge others, you will be judged and how you judge others is how you will be judged this idea this concept of judgment carries implications of we think the the judicial process when we think about a judge usually we think of a person right we think of that person who is kind of held up in in high esteem they're on the bench in the courtroom they're they're literally lifted higher than everyone else they're usually wearing robes It's that person's job, the judge's job, to carry out the judgments in the courtroom. It's their job to interpret the law, to determine if someone is guilty or not guilty, to hand out a punishment. What Jesus is saying here is that most of us are not judges. Yes, I know we just had a local election for judges. If you voted, uh, you know that that happened. Uh, But many of us are not judges. We don't live in that role. But sometimes we act like it. To judge is to elevate yourself above another person. Literally, judges in a courtroom are elevated above everyone else. When we, as people, elevate ourselves above others, we put ourselves in that position of a judge. We become interpreters of the law, we determine guilt in a certain situation, and we carry out the punishments. Ultimately, judgment is God's job. God is the one on the throne. God is the one elevated above all. God not only interprets the law as judge, but God created the law. God determines guilt because God knows everything. God knows the hearts of everyone. And God gets to carry out punishments because God is perfectly just. When we judge, we're fallible. We make mistakes. We may not interpret the law correctly. We may miss something and wrongly determine guilt in a situation. We may punish out of revenge instead of out of justice. Humans make bad judges. Now, there are times and places where judgment is needed. Certainly in our society, a judicial system is something that is good to keep the society stable. But any human system of justice is open to being corrupted by people. And even when humans do have to judge... Our goal should be to act as God would, as the perfect judge. What Jesus has in mind is something different for us. Jesus, he moves into a a mini parable here. It's kind of like a mini story. He stops using the language of judge and he starts to tell a story about two brothers. One brother has a speck of sawdust in his eye. The other brother has a plank of wood. In his eye. And it's kind of a funny story. It's a bit humorous. Obviously, Jesus is exaggerating a little bit here, but he's using that extreme language for a reason. Jesus is trying to make a point. And his point is when we make judgments of other people, our first step is to evaluate our own lives before we criticize the life of someone else. If I'm going to point out a flaw in someone else's life, what flaws do I have in my own life? It is often the people who are ignoring their own flaws, who love to point out the flaws in other people. Jesus was obviously talking about the Pharisees here, but this applies to everyone. Jesus says that first, you should work to remove those flaws in your own life before you try to remove them. From someone else's. Once you do that. You'll be able to see clearly. To remove the speck from someone else's eye. Notice how this is an interpersonal relationship. right? These are two brothers in this story. And they're handling this situation just amongst the two of them. And they're working, if they're brothers, then they're working from a place of love. For one another. They're trying to make each other better. That, at the end of the day, is the goal of judging. In verse 7, Jesus, he kind of shifts, finishes off that teaching, moves into a different teaching. This is a positive one. So he says, do not do this, but instead do this. He's telling people to do something. It's a saying that almost seems too good to be true. If we ask, we will receive we seek, we will find. If we knock, then the door will be opened to us. Jesus actually lists these things as commands. He's telling us to do these things. And these commands are in the present tense, which means that we should do them immediately and we should do them continually and often. It's implied that Jesus is talking about prayer here. He's talking about us praying for certain things. It's the only way that we can ask God for something is to talk to him. And Jesus, he kind of moves into another mini parable here, another story. He tells a story about a father and a son. It goes through a series of rhetorical questions. Of course, A father won't give his son a stone if his son asks for bread. People know how to give good gifts to each other. Parents know how to give good gifts to their children. How much more does God, our Heavenly Father, who knows us better than anyone, know how to give good gifts to us? And if he loves us as he says that he does, if we are his treasured possession, his creation made in his image, how much more will he want to give good gifts to us? Something that seems too good to be true. If we want good gifts from God, we have to start by asking. So often we think, well this this can't be true. We diminish what God wants for us. But we have to not just ask once but pray persistently to keep asking, praying with the belief that God will answer. Jesus closes this section. with a, He has a one-line summary of all of his ethical teaching, not only so far in this chapter, but also throughout the entire sermon. He says this, So in everything, Do to others what you would have them do for you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Here it is, the golden rule, as it's come to be known. I actually had no idea that it was located here in Matthew and that we're going to be talking about it this Sunday, so this surprised me a little bit. Here it is, plain and simple, the golden rule. If you want a summary of all of the law and the prophets, if you want a summary of all of Jesus' teaching, this is where it comes from. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you are thinking of doing something to someone else or for someone else, first think about what you would like to have done for you. This is an initial step that we must take if we want to treat others well. We must have foresight. We must have some self-awareness to be able to answer this question. How would I want to be treated if I was in that situation? How would I want other people to interact with me? And from there, work forward to how we act to other people. It takes pausing. It takes taking that brief second to think before we act or before we do something. So practice practice that we can do as followers of Jesus. It is something that we can get better at over the course of our lives. See, Jesus, he also wants to close up not just his ethical teaching, but also his teaching on the kingdom, the thing that he started with. So let's move on to our next section for this morning, how to enter the kingdom. Let me read verses 13 through 23 for us. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. When Jesus began his preaching ministry, his his message was simple. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus knows that people who have begun to follow him will be asking the question, well, how do we get into this kingdom? It's a logical question. Jesus illustrates this and he talks about a gate and a road. There are two paths in life. Those paths lead in two different directions. The first is the wide gate and the broad road. Because the gate is wide, many can enter through it. Because the road is broad, many can travel along that path. But this gate and this road lead to destruction. There's a second gate and there's a narrow road. different direction. Because that gate is small, only a few can enter through it. Because that road is narrow, not many will travel upon it. But that gate and that road lead to life instead of destruction. Jesus says to enter by the narrow gate. This is an idea captured by Robert Frost in his famous poem, Familiar, we learned about this in school, the road not taken. He says, Two roads, two roads diverged in a wood, and I I took the one less travelled by, and that has made all the difference. It's a familiar poem to us. The goal of Jesus' sayings here in this section is for us to take stock of our lives. Which path am I on? Am I on the broad path or the narrow path? And where is my life headed? Where do you see the majority of people going? Do you find yourself on that wide path in a crowd full of people that are all traveling in the same direction? Do you find yourself going against the grain? Maybe by yourself, maybe only with a few people, going in a different direction. So are you on the same path as everyone else? Are you on a different path? If we just go with the flow in our lives, we will find ourselves swept along with everyone else, carried on to the broad path. But if we make the hard choice of separating ourselves, living a different way, making sure our lives are different from what is considered normal, if we take that narrow path, we will find ourselves entering through that gate into eternal life. Jesus warns that people will come along. People will come to talk about some of these things, to talk about the ways that a life can be lived. Some of them will come with the goal to deceive us, to tell us, well, we can take the broad path. It doesn't matter if we go that direction. People will come with an outward appearance of innocence, right? Their message might sound good to us, but maybe there's a sinister heart hidden inside, personal motivation. These people, Jesus says, can be identified by their fruit. These people can be identified by what they produce in their lives, what comes out of them as people. If someone is leaving behind them a path of hurt, destruction, heartbreak, scandal, all of those things, it's probably best not to follow them. But if someone is leaving behind them hope, love, life, making the lives of other people better, that person is worth following. Many will come after Jesus, who will try to make the way into the kingdom of God easier. Some might say, you can enter through that broad path and through that wide gate. Some might attempt to get people to follow Jesus for their own personal gain. But here we have Jesus' answer. This is how it is. Anyone who says differently is not to be trusted. Jesus says, be careful who you follow. Just like there will, will be some leading who are false, false prophets. Jesus says there will also be some who are following those people who will be false, too. If you ask me what the scariest passage in all of Scripture is, it's not in Revelation, it's here, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So there's two important distinctions that Jesus is making here with this statement. First, calling Jesus Lord could mean two different things. The word here for Lord could mean a human master. People back then called each other Lord who might have served in a role of service or that kind of thing. So what does it mean for you when you call Jesus Lord. Do you mean that he is a good teacher? Do you mean that he said some nice things? Or do you mean that he is the Lord of all? God himself in the flesh. The other use of the word Lord would be the Old Testament use in the Greek. Lord also being translated for Yahweh. So which Lord is it for you? Second, Calling Jesus Lord is not enough. It is not enough to merely say that Jesus is Lord. You must live like it also. If Jesus is the Lord of all, then you would obey what he has said to do. If you call Jesus Lord, but then turn away and live completely different from what he has said to do, then he isn't really your Lord. Your Lord is really then yourself. Jesus goes on to say that many will come to him. Many will desire to enter into the kingdom of heaven and they will call him Lord and they will say that he has prophesied and that they have cast out demons and that they have performed miracles. But Jesus will say that he did not know them. It's not enough to call Jesus Lord. It's not enough to do what Jesus has said to do. What is enough is knowing Jesus, having a relationship with him. The reason Jesus says that he doesn't know these people is because he doesn't know their voice. They haven't talked with him regularly. They haven't walked with Jesus. They haven't shared their life with him They haven't worked with Jesus or for him. They haven't spent that time investing into that relationship. It is easy to say that Jesus is Lord. It's easy to go through the motions and to do what Jesus has said to do. But it's also easy to counterfeit these acts of God. If these things are done without that relationship with Jesus, then they are useless. The question that Jesus is asking is not only who do you say that I am, it's not only what do you do. The question is, do you have a relationship with me? If not, then how can you? What does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus? How do we do this? Well, Thankfully, Jesus answers that question. Let's move on to our next and last section for this morning. Let me read verses 24 through 29 for us. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house upon sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching Because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. So Jesus, he closes with one last parable here in this section. This parable is really a summary of his whole body of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, his whole body of teaching in the New Testament. Jesus compares our lives to a house. A house, I don't know a lot about home building, house needs a foundation. foundation gives to a house its stability and its strength. But you can choose to build that foundation on different types of things. Usually you want to build that foundation on the strongest thing. You can choose to build a foundation upon the rock. You can choose to build a foundation on the sand. Jesus knows that in our lives there will be trials... There will be hard times. There will be suffering. And sometimes we will despair over those things. Jesus compares those hard times to a storm that beats upon the house with wind and rain and creeks or streams that rise with that storm. When those storms come, it is the foundation that will be tested If the foundation is strong, if the house has been built upon the rock, it will withstand the storm. But if the foundation is weak, if it is built upon the sand, then the house will crumble. Jesus is saying that our lives need a strong foundation. The strongest foundation we can have to build our lives upon is Jesus' teaching itself. This teaching that he has just finished talking about. Not just on the hearing of his teaching, but also in the putting into practice of his teaching. If you want to withstand the storms of life, then you must build your foundation upon the teaching Of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus gives us what we need to live a good life and to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It is His teaching that gives our lives strength and stability. This morning, do you feel battered by the storms of life? Is the wind blowing against you and blowing you this way? that way, it's a good time to check the foundation. What is your life built upon? Is it built upon the rock? Is it built upon the sand? Are you like me, as a kid on the beach, trying to build that sandcastle over and over again, desperately trying to withstand the tide that is going to come in and that the sandcastle can't withstand? See, Jesus, He doesn't give us his teaching to, to weigh us down. Jesus gave us His teaching in order to set us free. Jesus knows that if we put into practice these things, if we live out the Sermon on the Mount, our lives will be better and not worse. It doesn't mean that we'll never go through anything hard, but it means we'll be able to withstand it. The Teaching of Jesus is not a burden. It's a gift. When the ultimate storm came upon Jesus in his life, when Jesus went to the cross to die for us, when God's judgment was poured upon him, Jesus took the sins of the world onto himself. He was ready. He had put into practice these things. He had lived them out perfectly. He had laid his foundation Upon the rock. Because he did, he remained obedient. He stayed on the cross. And through his death and resurrection, we can now take that narrow path. We can enter into that small gate. We can receive eternal life. See, Jesus did not ask us to do anything that he hasn't already done, he gave us the example to follow. Jesus took the narrow path. Jesus entered in through the small gate, and he opened it to the rest of us. The only question for us is, will we follow him? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you this morning for your son, Jesus. We thank you for this teaching. We thank you for the life that he lived we thank you that we can enter into your presence, into eternal life through him and in what He did for us. Father, may this section from your word this morning. may it be a reminder to us of how we should build our lives. May those who have a strong foundation be comforted. May those who may have a weak foundation see this as an opportunity to rebuild. We thank you, God, for this morning. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.